Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen Mod, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Conan the Barbarian. A young boy, Conan, becomes a slave after his parents are killed and tribe destroyed by a savage warlord and sorcerer, Thulsa Doom. When he grows up, he becomes a fearless, invincible fighter. Set free, he plots revenge against Thulsa Doom. Blood and muscles. Blood and muscles. Yeah, it's not bad. You know what? This, again, we're watching a first. True. That's very, very true. Like, it's not the first, it's not the first sort of sword and sandals epic ever. No. But it is the first high fantasy live action. Mm -hmm. And the first to be so brutal in how it depicts its violence. Uh, with the caveat that this is n- the 1982 version of Brutal. Mm-hmm. Like, at the time, this is considered one of the most violent films ever made. Now, it's pretty fucking laughable. Yes, this is nothing. Until the final scene. The final scene, some the blood starts to splatter a lot more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's it's nothing comparatively. I think it's hard to understand the impact of this mm-hmm. by not being there. Um, And the movie has not aged well (laughs) for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I will say this. It's not boring. It's comical. It's just so dated at this point. A little bit. And, you know, this is Arnold before he worked on his accent a little bit more. Not that his accent's a problem at all. Um, It's just there's definitely a shift. There's been a big shift. Um. And so that's a little jarring. This is before Arnold could be considered a bankable star. And that didn't happen until two years later. Fair. Yeah. That didn't happen until Jim Cameron said, we're going to make him the Terminator. Yeah. We're going to make him the indestructible android. And people were like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And yet he's also the absolute perfect casting for this role. Mm -hmm. Like this is bar none the best choice for the role i can't think of anybody better to play this character and they hide he doesn't talk for the first 30 minutes of the movie nope which is fine because conan does not have to be a character that talks a lot Mm -hmm. at least early on no the movie's dated he's arnold but there is there is something to this movie that makes it not a wow, what a horribly dated, ridiculous fantasy movie, and gets into a, huh, what a weird time capsule of a movie. Yes. But also how inventive it was with what it was working with. Yeah. And there are moments that are legitimately silly, like Mm -hmm. that snake looks terrible. The snake looks terrible, but it's also like awesome at the same time. And yet there is also some just absolute dead on fucking, whoa. That final fight scene is legit. It's fucking great. Yeah. There's some action in this movie that's legitimately good. It's just, boy, it needs an update and it needs a proper update. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, we like to do uh, sequels or remakes, but uh, we started to watch the 2011 version and who boy. We just like, what the fuck are we watching? And we just like got to a place where like, I, I can't care. I can't, I can't give this any more of my brain power. I will die. Jason Momoa was doing a good job. Don't get me wrong. Nobody else was. (laughs) No. Nobody. Like. Even the grips weren't doing a good job. 
Rod Perlman was dead inside. Oh my god. There's And I like Ron Perlman a lot. Yeah. Those Hellboys were great. Uh-huh. But no. 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 This is a no. So look, somebody could take the story, really rework it. And we'll talk a lot about how it differs from its source material. Okay. And how uh, now we should still very much differ from the source material. Sure. For lots of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but that Conan is actually a really interesting character that I think there's a lot you could do with. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie did what it could in 1982. I just don't know that that's necessarily the greatest watch in 2023. Yeah. But for a 40-year-old movie, I wasn't bored. I really wasn't. It was fairly entertaining. And one of the things that does make this film entertaining is that it's aged a bit. Um, you know, we're making fun of it a little bit, but it's also just in jest because it's kind of it's kind of cool. Like I, I like knowing how some of those effects were done. And even if we'd, you know, do things differently now, it it's effective. Yeah, we'll get into it. I, I think there's gonna be parts where we I think we're gonna have both good and ugh things to say about everybody involved mm-hmm. yeah um but i do i do enjoy the fact that there's lots of interesting fun things to talk about oh, yeah. <laughs> well the budget for this movie was about 20 million dollars that's 62 million in today's money now that is not a lot of money no especially when you're making a movie on this scale and i i need to remind everyone that this is the same year as blade runner oh, okay wow this is in between the star wars movies Jesus. And the year after Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. Adventure films and special effects films galore. It's true. But also, you see then how good the special effects are already working. Sure. This movie doesn't have the budget for it. No. And so that's the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Our filmmaker, who we have talked about a couple of times, mm-hmm. uh, is going to have some interesting ideas of how to get around that. Okay. It grows $39,500,000. That's roughly $123 million today. And globally, it grows $69 million. Nice. Which equates to about $215 million in today's money. A modest return, but it made an impact. Sure. Uh, for the opening. So this is still just before the multiplex. Mm-hmm. Right? The Star Wars movies, especially the original Star Wars, opened up in like... A handful of theaters because mm-hmm. that's still kind of the model now it it did make it out to the outer reaches but we're still in that weird in-between phase yeah audiences filled up three auditoriums for the opening of the movie a full third of the audience were bodybuilders cool yeah because they wanted to see arnold uh people lined up around the block in 16 different cities for as much as eight hours to see this movie i believe it because this is a like core hardcore nerd story and the the venn diagram of nerds to bodybuilders is very close to a complete circle well and this this story sits in a really interesting place in nerd lore this is before there was like game of thrones Mm -hmm. and before there was even the kind of deep high fantasy lore Mm -hmm. there was the conan stories Mm mm-hmm they date back to the 1930s. Yeah. So there is a very specific type of fantasy nerd in the 80s at this time who were, t- were like the original D&D players. Yeah. Who are into this shit. Yeah, that's cool. 
and they're like, I don't care about like uh, space Buddhists, and I don't care about Tomb Raiders. I give a shit about the muscle-bound warrior who also has found his way to adventure to become a man of culture. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that. There, there are some big differences made for the movie, though it's you know the first part of what was intended to be a much bigger thing. Sure. This also may have been the most successful comic pulp adaptation of the 1980s. Hmm. So remember, Star Wars and Indiana Jones are pure, complete original stories. Yep. This is actually a pulp fiction story from the Mm -hmm. 30s, then translated into comics in the 1950s. And it was not the biggest hit, but compared to what Marvel and DC put put out in the 1980s, including the fucking terrible IP grabs with Captain America and the Punisher and DC's Superman sequels in the 80s. Yeah. This is one of the few that actually had some lasting impact and Mm -hmm. made a decent return. Okay. Now, our director planned on this being the first part of a trilogy, each being a theme surrounding swords and steel. This, the first movie, would have been about the strength of the sword, the second about how to wield the sword, and the third about the consequences of the sword. I like all of those ideas. That's really interesting. Now, uh, the movie is also thought to be a a real trendsetter for fascist themes in movie making. Okay. So, Conan, in his original conception, is... Not defined, but pretty similar to Celtic characters. Yeah. He's like a druid warrior guy. Instead, they cast a giant bodybuilder Austrian. Yeah. So when you get into things like film, this movie also sparks a lot of like film criticism. Sure. And, And I mean that in like the academic sense, because... This, along with Rambo First First Blood, came out this same year. And that mm-hmm. was before Rambo became like Rambo. Sure. Which also sparked a lot of the same conversations. But this movie was one of the first ones that was like, oh, we're going to talk about somebody who's like ruthlessly individual and also is willing to murder at any cost to get what he sees as righteous. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Lots of critics have also pointed to potential influences of Nazi filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl. Now, to be clear, many, many film students had to watch her stuff, including, like, our director was right there along with Scorsese and Spielberg, and they all had to watch the same thing. Because Riefenstahl, while being a Nazi, was also incredibly influential. Yeah. But the violence is interesting, too, because it is laughable, but this is one of the very first movies to push that violent boundary. Sure. Some people, of course, thought the body count was ridiculous, and it's it's pretty high, let's not lie. Mm-hmm. It's not John Wick levels, but it's it's not bad. Others saw the violence and were like, well, it, it's whatever it is, but it just looks like shit. Yeah. And a lot of it does. The fans of the stories had an interesting take. They didn't like the violence because of its cartoonish nature. Mm-hmm. And they were missing the darkness and richness of the violence depicted in the stories. Okay. And this is how we get into our writing. Okay. So the creator of Conan is a gentleman named Robert E. Howard. He created the character through mostly stories and I believe like one or two novels in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. 
Um, his fiction was carried in the magazine Weird Tales, which is legendary. Um, also legendary. Also a place where H.P. Lovecraft, a friend and admirer of Robert E. Howard, also published his tales. Okay. If you know anything about that, you'll know that there might be some problematic things in the character. No, uh, no way. We'll talk about that. Getting an uncredited story writing credit is a gentleman named Edward Summer. This is all he's ever done. Okay. Um, and he didn't actually get official credit for the movie, though he did get official credit for the Conan video game. Okay. But the two writers of this movie are Oliver Stone, mm-hmm. who we already talked about him just recently at for JFK in her nineteen ninety one Oscar series, mm-hmm. and a gentleman named John Milius. Oh, okay. Um, oh yeah. I recognize that name. That that was um Apocalypse Now. Uh huh. And he's the guy that uh, Big Lebowski, uh, Walter's based on. You are missing one important point, and that is the movie he made right after this, Red Dawn. Oh, that film does not register in my brain, really, <laughs> in any way. Not that it was a shitty movie, it was just, it, it, it wasn't I think there's some memorable moments from it. I yeah. don't love Powers Booth trying to hit on a 16-year-old, but then on the flip side, it's not reciprocated, so... It was weird. So just so we know, uh, this comes just after he wrote Apocalypse Now and then Mm -hmm. worked with Steven Spielberg on 1941. And then, of course, Red Dawn comes right after this. Mm -hmm. What do we think of the writing of this movie? Um, It's flawed. It moves really slow in the beginning. Yeah. And it doesn't need to. So like on the one hand, it moves really slow. On the other hand, I appreciate that this is a movie like with Marvel. We have finally gotten to the point where we're like origin stories need to be done in five minutes. You have to be telling us something very new that we haven't seen before to go on a long origin story. Exactly. And even now, I don't hate that we have this much origin story because none of us fucking know who Conan is. Fair. Again, the cross section of people who are like devoted to the Conan stories. Mm hmm not a big group of people so i don't hate the fact that we do a lot of exposition Mm -hmm. i just think that over the course of the movie we linger a little too long on different moments that's fair like we just stay too long in a certain place we stay too long with dulce doom coming in we stay too long with him and the witch which makes no fucking sense other than like setting up the world, which again, you can do it. You just don't need to do it so much. Yeah. And I feel like that's really what it is, is like we spend so much time in these different parts of the story mm-hmm. when you could get through this in like an hour 45. Yeah. And just little, little ratchet up. The thing, though, is like I like the core concepts of the story mm-hmm. because I think he is an interesting figure. Um. I do think that there are things that they 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 really flattened out the stories for the movie, which makes a lot of sense. Sure. Like, you've, you, you have to make a movie that people will watch. But there are things about Conan, the character, that I think are, are honestly the really interesting thing to, to follow through with. Um, fans of the movie were really confused. <laughs> or fans okay. of the stories were confused. Mm-hmm. Because when they went to this, Based on the stories, they were expecting something pulpy. Okay. Like, I think people were expecting something like a speed racer. Mm. 
And if you made this movie with some of that same aesthetic, or if you made it almost like the Prince Valiant comics, if you've ever seen those, Mm -hmm. but you made a movie that had like that feeling and style, which this movie does in moments, Mm -hmm. you would get the point of Conan himself. The original Conan was told with uh, a romantic and gilded age feel. Um, the stories were noted for their descriptions of the color pageantry, the magic and snakes. Even the violence was written with like bright colors mm-hmm. and like vivid descriptions to make it all just like so colorful. And instead, this movie was inspired by Nietzsche mm. and went straight to the darkness. Okay. In fact, Conan's personal philosophy, which is uh, written into the story, is, quote, let me live deep while I live. Let me know the rich juices of red meat and stinging wine on my palate, the hot embrace of white arms, the mad exultation of battle when the blue blades flame and crimson, and I am content. I live, I burn with life, I love, I slay, and am content, unquote. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot, but couldn't you make a hell of a movie out of that? Oh, yeah, you could. And, like, I think that's the other thing is, like, they aimed way darker than they really needed to. Yeah, but it's the pool. I just think there are elements where it was, like, you could have played more with, like, the brightness and richness of things. Sure. Instead of making it so, like, honestly, dark and leathery and gothic with a capital G. I don't know that it would would be as iconic as it was. No. But, you know, I don't know. It's... It's flawed, but it's also interesting. Like it's not it's not boring writing and it's not just horrible. It's just got a lot of mess in there that we could clean up. Uh I do find it interesting one thing that John Millius's last project was the television series Rome. Oh wow. Which would tell you a whole fucking lot. Man, Rome. Well, okay, I I've never watched Rome. You said Rome and I thought Spartacus, which was like insane. Oh, Rome's more insane. <laughs> By all accounts. I don't know. So the funny thing here is that this is originally Oliver Stone's movie. Mm -hmm. He was writing it. However, he's fucking Oliver Stone. Uh, So his version would have been about four hours long. Mm -hmm. Uh, There would have been tons more creatures, tons more things involved with it. And uh, the cost for his script was about $70 million. And the studio was like, okay, we can't do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So they brought in John Milius, who he himself being a practical filmmaker and having done this for many years, cut the budget significantly. Okay. And he said, fuck it, we're not adding all these creatures. We're not going ILM. We're going to make it practical. His whole thing was, let's make it real. Fine, you want to tell a movie? Uh, we could get into Walter Subcheck voice so easily. Oh, yeah. You want a monster movie? I'll give you a monster movie. I'll make all the monsters look terrible. And I'll get it bloody and dirty. <laughs> John fucking Milius, everyone. He's a crazy man. Uh, I do love that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was never in doubt for this role. Okay, that's cool. While writing this movie, Oliver Stone had Arnold read comics and fantasy novels to him to see how he would handle some of the dialogue that he was writing. Okay, that's smart. So before Milius is even on board, Arnold's on board. Love it. Um, Stone's original script would have set the timeline in a post-apocalyptic future. Okay. Despite the fact that the original story is set around 10,000 BC. Okay. So it's like this missing saga age of history. Although Howard literally just took medieval themes and influences because he was like, I'm not doing research to 10,000 BC. <laughs> I love it. 
eh, you know, I can't blame you for that. You're a pulp writer. What are you going to do with that much research? Mm-hmm. It's going to cost you so much money. <laughs> but all of the different names and like, there's so much, t- roughly a half of the trivia on this movie is all shit about the stories. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is how much the stories were taken from versus how much of other ancient civilizations and research was put into the characters for the movie. Um, Because Milius pulled from lots of historical research. He pulled from lots of imagery from other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the notes they put is like the makeup that they give Arnold after he escapes from the ghosts is referencing a Kurosawa film that deals with ghosts and and painting it's Japanese in in style. Mm -hmm. So there's like all these... All these influences that Milius is just like throwing at things. Yeah. Mostly to just get the movie done. That's cool. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that Conan's story in this film follows a different Howard character, that being Cole the Conqueror. Mm-hmm. So Conan, in his stories, was a young adventurer who left home on his own. Cole was actually the one that was exiled and spent time as a slave and gladiator before taking the throne. Um, and Thulsa Doom is named after and based on a character from the Cole series. Oh, okay. So this might as well be Cole the Conqueror that we're watching. <laughs> yeah, um, but if they were ho- if they were if they were gonna go on a journey, it makes sense to start here. Yeah, and go. Yeah. Um, they do point out that Conan as a character, and again, they could have gotten into this later. Mm-hmm. Um, but as he becomes a leader, Conan is Conan becomes known for being a talented commander and strategic leader. He learns to read and write on his own and acquired the ability to learn languages throughout his travels. That's cool. So like Conan as a character, that's sort of the interesting thing is like on his journey, Conan stops becoming just like brute force and like learns and soaks up. And so he's almost like this incredibly muscly warrior version of Alexander the Great almost. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, But let's be clear. Conan is also a... Kind of a love letter to whiteness. Okay. Uh, Howard wanted to portray Conan in his ideal appearance. Tall and powerful with dark hair and blue or gray eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard kind of wished he could live the way that Conan does. Quote, barbarism is the natural state of mankind. Civilization is unnatural. It is a whim of circumstance. And barbarism must always ultimately triumph. Well, that's a choice. If you've heard about eco-fascism, you'll know just how much that ties in. Fascists love to talk about their barbarism in action. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, it's not good. It's not no. good. It's the 30s. He was friends with Lovecraft. You can infer all of those things. Mm-hmm. That being said, Conan as a character is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And you can excise those elements while still exploring him as this really cool character. Uh, Conan's response, famous response to the Mongol general. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear a lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. The same thing, lamentations, is like a lot. Well, it is a not too far off paraphrase of Genghis Khan. Okay. And Subotai, the uh, sort of sidekick to Conan, is a rough translation of Khan's general, Subodei Bagdur. Mm-hmm. As well, Conan's chase from the dogs fits with Genghis Khan's fear of dogs, and the constant references to steel echoes Khan's birth name, Temujin, roughly translated as finest steel. 
Mm-hmm. Some other fun notes in the original script, the tomb where Conan got his sword was from the lost city of Atlantis. Because why not? Okay. <laughs> sure. And the Doom cult was based around the flagellants, the cult that wore white robes and whipped themselves as penance during the Black Death in the 14th century. Okay. They went full culty vibes on them, and the cult was creepy in the best way. The cult was creepy, and I'm okay with that. If you're going to put a cult in a movie, make them creepy. Yeah, I don't like, yeah, creepy cults are nothing. Well, I found it really interesting because they made the cult creepy in the right way because none of those people individually are threatening, but if they all swarm together, they're terrifying. Yeah. And that's how you do that. Yeah. So now we talk about our director, John Milius. It has been a red dawn. A red dawn. What do we think of the directing of this movie? It is full of choices. <laughs> Most I, of them work, honestly. I'm, Here's the thing. To me, the script is where we've got like, oh boy, this is really cool. And then, oh no, we've got a lot to get through here. Yeah. I think the fact is he makes a lot of choices and I think he makes the best choice possible. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't always mean that the best choice possible is going to be great. <laughs> Yeah, it's just there's so many there. There's not so many, but there's a lot of sequences that just read as awkward and weird. What's happening on screen doesn't make it better. Yeah, I well, honestly, it's all the interaction between characters Mm -hmm. and like no shade, but you do not have you don't have necessarily the best chemistry because you also have an actor who just is learning. Yeah, I mean. Arnold's not a bad actor. We know this for sure. And we also know that Arnold in this movie is not bad, Mm -hmm. but he is still figuring shit out. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's doing. And that's fine. Quite. (laughs) And I I just I I don't know that there was ever going to be a way where this movie was going to be just perfectly awesome. Yeah. Like we would go five stars. No notes. No, no, no. There's no fucking way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just think he he makes the best choice he can and then he goes for fucking broke Mm -hmm. when it comes time to do things again when it comes to fighting a snake in a pit okay that doesn't really work yeah however when it comes to guy turning into a snake kind of creepy and cool yeah that was fun when conan climbs up to go fight people also pretty cool Mm -hmm. like there's there's this mixture of stuff where it's just like Oh boy, that was bad. And then you'll like turn around right in a second and be like, that was really fucking fun. It was something. And so I almost feel like the directing is, you know, it's that you're make you're in such a weird process of a movie and you've been tasked with this almost insurmountable thing and you somehow managed to make it through and made it watchable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's high praise for his directing, <laughs> but who knows? Uh, we have a who could have been better. Oliver Stone wanted Ridley Scott to do this. Okay. Fresh off of fresh off of working on Alien. Okay. Because this movie started in like 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ridley Scott was like, mm, I'm gonna go do Blade Runner instead. Yeah. And yeah, that worked out pretty well for him. Yes, it did. Mm. That was the right choice. They originally planned to film in Yugoslavia because, like we talked about with Fiddler on the Roof. We had a dictator there who was more than happy to bring people in on the cheap. Yay. Tito, you know? Mm-hmm. Which, in Feather on the Roof, worked really well, because that was, like, the area they were actually in. 
Yeah, that um, one made a little more sense. This one, no. <laughs> uh, but there was pol- major political instability. I don't know if you know about this, but uh, right around that time, Yugoslavia starts to break up and a whole lot of shit happens in the Balkans. Yes, yes, it does. Um, so they moved to Spain to go film. Mm-hmm. Which makes a lot of sense when you start looking at that stuff and go like, oh, yeah, that's that's definitely Spain. Uh, ironically, while filming, there was a failed coup in Spain. Okay. In 1981. Hmm. Granted, this is after the fall of Franco and the fascists, but it's uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> okay. Now, despite the crucifixion and death rebirth cycles that are mentioned, Milius is very much on record that uh, he used a lot of pagan imagery to create this film. I think taking from the Celtic and Viking ideas, mm-hmm. he really pushed hard on that end. So Conan's very much Celtic in in style that makes sense with like sort of the snowy area that they come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, King Osric, Max von Sydow is definitely Norse. There's runes behind him. So like he, he he's definitely pulling from all this different pagan stuff. Mm-hmm. He had an interesting observation about the violence. He didn't want it to be ultra bloody just to be bloody. He felt like making it that violent was important to the character's world. Because of all the violence, he says, quote, you don't dwell on any of the violence. Mm -hmm. In the Greek theater, you wouldn't. It'd be too far away, but it's there. There is blood. You know what's happening to people, and it's very realistic, unquote. (laughs) And I think that's that's sort of the interesting thing. You know, Game of Thrones tried to ride that line, and sometimes it got the balance right of trying to say, like, we're going to show you a whole bunch of horrible shit because you need to understand that this is what it would just be like every day for people. Yeah, that there are stakes. Yeah, there are stakes. And also, when you see people flippant about death, it's like, well, it happens constantly all the fucking time. So why would I care that much? Yep. Like, that's kind. It's not a bad idea. And again, the violence in this movie is nothing. And I think part of it is because he was actually thoughtful about how much he put in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 200 workers built the set in a large warehouse outside Madrid. Crew members were made up of people from Italy, England, America, and Spain. 1,500 extras were employed for the film. Oh, wow. The score was completed with a 90-piece orchestra and a 24-member choir singing in mock Latin. Hmm. They they pushed it hard. And on a very limited budget, I might add. That's cool. Uh, The Temple of Set was built on the mountains west of Almira from wood, lacquer, and tons of concrete. The stairway had 120 actual steps. Mm-hmm. Now, what we see in the film isn't nearly as violent as what Milius presented. Okay. Uh, the film, in its original version, it was much, much more violent. When Conan's mother gets her head cut off, there is a graphic close-up of her head. Fine. Uh, we see the graphic slaying of a monster by Subutai at the top of the Serpent Tower. Mm-hmm. And we see Conan chopping off the arm of a pickpocket at the bazaar. The studio, seeing all of this, was like, oh my god, we can't do this. <laughs> because again, nobody's made a movie this violent. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we can't sell this movie. Absolutely not. <laughs> and Milius, who is nothing if not practical, was like, cool, I'll cut it. All right. Well. And he did. He, he pared it back really hard. And at the time, Arnold was on record as saying it really annoyed him. Mm-hmm. Um, but as he reflected on it, he was like, yeah, that's the only way more people saw this. <laughs> I mean, it's fair. Like you've got like there are some there are things you've gotta you've gotta give and take on. The one interesting thing is like watching the 2011 version and being like, geez, they really pushed it hard. 
and nobody cared. Yeah, and that's because like the violence had just exploded in media at that point. So we're just like, who gives a fuck? Right. But in 1982, totally different environment they're going into. Arnold was like, well, I was pissed that we couldn't do what we really wanted to do. But actually, this was more important for everyone involved Mm -hmm. to not get an X rating because that's what would have happened. Sure. Uh, Milius wanted Arnold to be the narrator for the film. Uh, But the executives were very concerned about his accent. Oh, okay, yeah. So instead, they brought Mako, the uh, actor playing the wizard, to do the narration. Okay. Both Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sandal Bergman had to perform their own stunts themselves. They couldn't get anyone for their size. There were no suitable body doubles. Yep. Stunt coordinator Terry Leonard, fresh off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, was brought in to help Schwarzenegger, Bergman, and Jerry Lopez complete their stunts. Hmm. So, while some of it is really laughable, those moments that are really fucking cool, the actors did their damn selves. Yeah. Production designer Ron Cobb, a concept artist for Alien and did a lot of amazing work, uh, was tasked with determining how to bring the Hyborian Age to life. He wanted to avoid Greek architecture and Neo-Roman designs of the sword and sandal movies of the 50s and 60s. He didn't want it to look like what people would expect. So instead, he looked to the Dark Ages and Viking imagery to create the designs for the film, which again, I get, Mm -hmm. but I almost, like I said, a Prince Valiant color version palette of this movie would be incredible to watch. Yeah, that would have been interesting and also a little more unexpected. Well, especially like you can make Conan dark and leathery all day long. Yeah. But then you go into that serpent tower and they chose kind of like the greeny woozy vibe, Mm -hmm. which works. But imagine that being like in full, almost technicolor. Yeah. Inside the serpent temple. And then all of that like blood getting splattered everywhere. (laughs) Oh, hell yes. That could be fun. That would be so cool. Milius wanted to avoid optical effects and matte paintings. He wanted to get real effects on screen. Mm. However, they didn't have massive sets because they don't have the money to build them. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? They used miniatures and then filmed in perspective. So what they would do is take scale models of the buildings. They'd put them very carefully in the shot of the camera Mm -hmm. and then they pull the actors in so that it would look like it towered over them. I love that. It's pretty good. No, it's great. I mean, that's not different than like what they were doing on Star Wars with the ships. Yeah, sort of. The interesting, the wrinkle here is that in Star Wars on the ships, you're seeing just the ship battles and the dogfights. Mm-hmm. In this, you're having to put the actual actors in the moment. Mm-hmm. And you're having to get a shot that doesn't feel like weird because I don't think they just did this for static shots. So that makes it even harder. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, the only sequence created with special effects was the ghost sequence mm-hmm. where Conan's being haunted. Um, the original version, however, that was created uh, between two groups, including Industrial Light and Magic, looked too similar to the haunting moment with the face melting in Raiders, where the ghosts fly out of the Ark of the Covenant. So instead, they used cell animation. Mm-hmm. In order to get the the ghosts floating above Conan, hmm. which is kind of cartoony, but it works for a movie like this. Yeah, 
Milius, being a madman, came up with all of the tactics and booby traps himself, because of course he did. Mm -hmm. And Milius, being a madman, also felt that the movie was definitely going right whenever Arnold got injured. Okay. He's a weird guy. Mm -hmm. We have one other interesting who could have been better. Joe Alvis, who was the production designer for Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. This could have been his movie to direct. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear. John Milius is that real special blend of bonkers and practical to pull this story off. Yes. If you put, let's go past these guys. If you put Steven on this movie, Steven's not bonkers enough to push the edge, and he's Steve- not practical enough to not bust this budget wide open. No, Stephen is practical enough. I mean, remember, let's look at his early work. He he will spend money, but he does spend it very well. He is a problem solver. He is, first and foremost, an excellent producer. Yeah. That is the secret sauce to that man. That's how he attacks things. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would have fixed this script. That's true. <laughs> He, he would have fixed that script because that is our biggest problem. Yeah. Because a, a perfect script with a tight budget is fine. That That's not a problem. Because... I wouldn't care as, as no. much about the weird shit. <laughs> no, I mean, look at some of those older films that we've watched that were like, yes, you know, like, you know, it does look great. No, is the best promise. No, but man, love this story. I mean, it's simple. It's yeah. simple. Um, Yeah, it's just, nah. Anyway, uh, let's get to our cast and uh, a guy who's, I don't know, kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Have we ever talked about him on the show? We have. Last Action Hero. Oh, that's true. It's been, it's been a minute. I know. It has. But this is this is a big moment for him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This is the moment where he shifted from a former bodybuilder turned actor mm-hmm. and sort of a curiosity that Hollywood was like, well, Oh, he's interesting. Mm-hmm. To this is the moment where somebody like James Cameron could look at him and go, "Oh, he could be an action star." Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was the first and only choice for the role. They had other people they considered, but he was like the real one they wanted. Yeah, they were backups. And uh, he really pushed hard for this chance. He didn't know anything about Conan, okay. but once he read enough of the comics and learned about stuff, he he was like, "I'm in. I want to do this. This is my mm-hmm. chance." And there wasn't even a script, so he just read every comic, every story he could get his hands on to prepare. I love that. I do. What do we think of Arnold in this movie? I think he's great. I mean, any the the stiffness in him comes from the script more than him. Um, he you know you can tell he's a little green, but that's fine. Like I don't care. Um, he's Conan. That's cool. It's really interesting too how some of that greenness works for this introduction to this character who's never known anything but blood and steel sure yeah because this is i mean he's not supposed to know anything yeah he's he's supposed to still be new at this like but this is his like path this is his goal and you see all the different sides a very early version but all the different sides of arnold Mm -hmm. like the fucking stare the drunken stare at the camera moment Mm -hmm. is so good yeah that's pretty funny like it's it, it could just be dated, mm-hmm. and I think he kind of feels that way. He's like, "What a stupid thing I did," and I was like, "No, that works so well, though." Yeah. 
Like, he would just get drunk and gacked out. And then he'd be told he's being taken before the king and be like, what? Pass out. <laughs> That's such a meathead thing to do. Love it. We love the meathead. Um, you know, other than he has some issues delivering the lines, like, he's got Encino Man vibes. Kinda, yeah. But also, he can fucking kill you in two seconds. Also true. And he doesn't even need to try. He could just, like, rip your throat out just by, like, gently tapping you. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I kind of like that this is a moment where... So, there is an interesting thing is that he had stopped body- bodybuilding. He retired in 1975, right after that Pumping Iron documentary. Mm-hmm. And that's when he switched into acting. He was like, I, I want to go pursue that. So, a lot of this was getting back into shape mm-hmm. for him, which comes naturally to him. But you can tell that he's not as, like, completely roided out. Mm-hmm. You can tell that he's like, oh, this is action star ripped for him. Yeah. And he knows how to do that. I mean, he knew how to bodybuild. Mm-hmm. But it's just sort of interesting to watch him there and be like, this is different, Arnold. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what we would see later from him. He was 33 years old when they started filming in 1980. So, like, this is, he's starting late. Mm-hmm. Uh, but production delays went so long that he wound up taking other small roles. He did a TV movie for the Jane Mansfield story just to get more acting experience. Cool. And while the film was intended to be a running franchise, the film was originally intended to be a running franchise. He was signed for at least four sequels. Wow. So he was contractually obligated. Now, I don't know if they intended to make that many, but they were like, you're at least having to do these if we decide to make them. Yeah. Which the good news was he got five percent of the profit. That's a good. That's a that's a good deal. That's a especially for a guy who's like just now being positioned as a star. Well, and that nobody's seen and nobody knows. Uh, he's been seen, but not as like an actual legit box office guy. Okay, so he's he's untested. Yeah, like people know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is, but it's basically a stunt cast. Mm-hmm. The, they don't know him as a an actual movie star. Yeah. <laughs> so 5% of profit, that ain't bad at all for you, sir. Uh, he did go through intensive training for the film, uh, did weapons, martial arts, and horseback riding. He trained with an 11-pound broadsword two hours a day for three months. He learned yeah. climbing, falling safely, and rolling, and jumping from 15 up, all part of his stunt coordination. Mm-hmm. And Milius had all of this videotaped. Schwarzenegger looked back on it and said the process was as intense, maybe more than the bodybuilding training he did. Wow. I can I can see that. In fact, before he ever got the role, he worked with an expert on the Conan stories and living in the wild. Mm-hmm. So this guy taught him how to live like Conan, sleeping outdoors, living off the land and so on. That's cool. Schwarzenegger actually thanked him by casting him in a minor role where Conan hacks him to pieces. Interesting. And the guy was so excited. He was like, I got a role in the movie. That's awesome. I was just going to do it because I love Conan. That's cool. Schwarzenegger made some little nerd's heart. Yeah. And I love it. He did have actual trouble riding the camel. Okay. As he would try to get it moving, it would keep walking into the wooden beams of the hut that he was in. Um, to be fair, he had never been on a camel and, uh, you know, and he punched one in the face. So, so fucking funny. That's, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger good. punching a camel in the face. Yeah, that track. Mm-hmm. He also went through extensive voice training to soften his Austrian accent. Okay. Which 
if you've watched the clips of him from Pumping Iron, mm-hmm. and then you watch him here, and you're like, okay, he's definitely gotten better. Yeah. Like, over that, that five or six year period, he's definitely been able to rein it in. It's, it's still really thick. Oh, yeah. He doesn't really settle into, like, his true voice until I feel like the late 80s. Because mm-hmm. even in Terminator, it's still pretty thick. Right around like late 80s, that early 90s period when he starts doing the comedies and you're like, okay, now it's just Arnold. Like he's never going to lose it, but he's got it to a point where we're all on board. Arnold and Sandal Bergman's love scene was the first one they had ever done on film. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit awkward. Sure. Apparently it was fine. There were no bad reports. It was just like, wow, this is a big moment for both of you. Mm-hmm. Um, he, like we said, he had retired from bodybuilding, but because of the intensive training, he decided to re-enter the 1980 Mr. Olympia contest. Oh, okay. And he won, though many of the other bodybuilders around him believed this was a publicity play by the Mr. Olympia group. I mean, I can't blame him for thinking that. Eh. And he reportedly kept the snake dagger as a memento, later giving it to his nephew. That's cool. And there'll be plenty of trivia later, but we have a few who could have been betters. Oh, okay. Charles Bronson. Okay. Too old. Yes. And I love Charles Bronson. but sure. no. William Smith, the guy who played Conan's dad. Okay. I think he was like a friend of Milius, so he was just considered at some point. He had that rough look. Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, that makes sense. If you're not going to get Arnold. You go for Stallone. Like, that's just what you do. Different weird accent vibe, though. Imagine Stallone trying to talk through this medieval storyline. Yes. Stallone mumbling through this movie would not work nearly as well as Arnold. Like, the whole time. Yeah, no, it doesn't. The ADR is the funniest shit ever. When he groans because he's getting hit, and they're like, they've totally recorded it later. Mm-hmm. And you hear, and you hear that classic, ah, ah. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's so Arnold. All right, then we have James Earl Jones playing Thulsa Doom. That was so weird. He is also kind of a big deal. Yeah. What do we think of James Earl Jones in this movie? good but it's so weird to watch him yeah it, it's just it, the the novelty of the casting mm-hmm. or the the weirdness of the casting takes a while to get used to yes once he settles into like the snake cult leader thing mm-hmm. it's perfect and like james earl jones awesome choice for a bad guy there's a reason he was the voice of darth vader <laughs> but it's hard to watch and the wig doesn't help <laughs> No, the wig's really not great. I know. The only the only way it could have been better is if we find out that the wig is like fake and it's hiding like some of his snake form. Maybe I don't. Yeah, the wig's just not good. It's not working. It's not. I no. It's just no. It's it's just hard to see past the James Earl Jones of it all. Yeah, he he has so much bravado, and I almost think he's too big for this role. He might be. He might be. Mm-hmm. However, he and Arnold became really good friends during filming. That's cool. James obviously helped Arnold with his acting. Okay. Because Arnold was going to get as much advice as he possibly could. Mm-hmm. But Arnold returned the favor by helping keep James in shape. Okay. He worked with James Earl Jones was like, all right, well, we'll work with you. We'll, we'll help you, you know, 
get healthy and work out. Mm-hmm. I like it. We have a who could have been better. Sean Connery. Oh, okay. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I'm never going to say no to Sean Connery in a devilish role. Rarely. 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 Finally, we have Sandal Bergman playing Valeria. Now, before this, she was primarily a dancer. Uh, she appeared okay. in Mame, All That Jazz, and Xanadu. And Bob Fosse recommended her for this role because of her ability to do the physicality. Mm-hmm. After this, she appeared in Airplane 2, the sequel, She, Red Sonia, and then did a bunch of random shit, like random TV appearances. I saw some things that looked like softcore porn. She just did other jobs. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Sandal Bergman in this movie? She's okay. Again, her the writing for her is god-awful. Of course. So, yeah. But, you know, I I don't think... And she's she looks very green in terms of acting as well. But okay, her and Arnold are evenly matched. <laughs> I mean, then in a good way. Yeah. She does a lot more with a shit script than I... With a shit script and for an 80s movie heroine in a role like this mm-hmm. than I would expect. Mm-hmm. She she's giving a lot more. She has a lot more investment mm-hmm. and character choice than I would typically think I'd see from a movie like this. Mm-hmm. And while the character's not written great, the character does have a lot of agency, which is refreshing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she'll make the she'll make the kind of fun eyes, and then she will cut a dude's throat. Like it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And she gets a one-liner, which actually is fun and good. Like, I, she, she's, she's better than you would expect. That's not necessarily saying she's great, but it makes it not terrible to watch. Yeah, she's, she, is, she is very good. Like, mm-hmm. she's someone who, like, we can make you better. If she had a good script, she would have been just fine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Her name never gets spoken in the entire film. Okay. It's awesome. Great job. Great work. Mm-hmm. Dudes white dudes um and apparently she was the biggest cause of injuries during filming uh she was using the fake weapons but would keep cutting or stabbing people with them Mm -hmm. while they were filming not great yep who could have been better raquel welch she would have been too focused pulling especially from arnold yeah no like she would have been she she would have outclassed him with Mm -hmm. just walking in the room um because she just has that kind of presence um, that would have been awful. No. All right. That leads us into our pawns. Mm-hmm. Random people of note. We have Max von Sydow as King Osric, one of the greatest Swedish actors of all time. Yep. Schwarzenegger called him the first, quote, incredible dramatic actor he ever worked with. He found Sydow's performance staggering. Okay. He's not in the movie very long, but I get it. <laughs> uh, Sydow also helped coach Arnold on his acting. Um, everybody, everybody recognizes like this guy's got something. We just need to work with him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Sidow appeared in the film for his son, a longtime fan of the Conan stories. Okay. We do have a couple of who could have been betters: Sterling Hayden, aka Colonel Jack Ripper from Doctor Strangelove. Okay. And John Huston. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm never gonna say no to John Huston. I really have no strong feelings on this. No, I got it. We have Jerry Lopez playing Subotai. He was a surfer. Okay. He's a legendary surfer. So he's like an old age 70s surfer. 
who appeared in Milius's surfing movie Big Wednesday, and Milius put him in this role. However, that is not his voice that we are hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another a Japanese actor who does the voice of Subotai for the film. Okay. Which, uh, you know, whatever. Um, we have Mako, the wizard, and the narrator. Um, he hasn't done a lot of like recognizable movies that we've seen, although he has been in some like big deal movies. He's a legendary Japanese American actor and a voice actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been in a ton of stuff. Uh, William Smith, Conan's father. We talked about him for a second. He was the store owner who got held up in The Outsiders and one of the Russian soldiers in Red Dawn. We have great who could have been betters for Conan's father. Jack Palance, Joe Don Baker, and Nick Nolte. Hmm. All three of those gentlemen would be great choices. They would be, yes. Franco Colombo playing a Pictish scout. Colombo was a fellow bodybuilder and friend of Schwarzenegger whom Arnold would frequently bring into smaller film roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was also Arnold's trainer for the movie. Okay. You would know him from the Pumping Iron documentary, and he also played the strong man in Big Top Pee-wee. Yes. Wow. Okay. Uh, Eric Holmey playing a Turanian war officer. He is one of the world's, he is one of the world's greatest strongmen and an actor brought in via Arnold. Mm -hmm. Sven Olathornsson, playing i don't remember his character's name at the moment but he's one of the uh the sidekicks to tulsa doom um he is also like a huge deal strong man okay uh again arnold brought in all his bodybuilding buddies here ron cobb playing the black lotus street peddler we just talked about him he's the production designer oh okay cool and he's not terrible in that little role donald gibb playing osric's guard that guy is Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> and okay. Jackson from Bloodsport. Kumite. 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 Celia Milius playing the High Priestess. This is the wife of John Milius. Mm, okay. John Milius himself was a food seller in the Old City. His scene reportedly got cut. And Kiyoshi Yamasaki as the sword master who uh, slaps Conan across the face. He was the actual sword master for all the actors in the film. Okay. And finally, uh, who could have been better here that I, they don't specify who he would have playing, though I have to assume it would have been Subutai, Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah. That could have been cool. Jackie Chan as Arnold's sidekick? Yeah. What a fucking movie. That would have been cool. Right? You get Arnold just like beefing down guys, and then you've got Jackie flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. I want it. I want it now. I know they're older, but like, let them do an old man fight movie. Yeah. Oh God, what if they put Jackie Chan in the Expendables? I was just about to say, I was like, I think that's what the Expendables was, which we tried to watch, and then we're like, no, no, <laughs> this is not good. It's just it's not for us. That one is not for us. Like it. It's just like. It's not good. <laughs> I can't even describe it. It's just, it's not good. There's no plot. I don't like it. On to trivia. Trivia. Composer Basil Polidorus, who worked on Robocop, The Hunt for Red October, and Free Willy, okay. used M- MuSync, a hardware-software combination that modified the tempo of compositions to synchronize with the action of the film. Mm-hmm. It's the first ever film to use that system. Okay. Because of how 
I don't know, perfectly synced to the score is, it's often used by filmmakers as a temporary track for their scenes, and they use it a lot in advanced trailers or TV shots for short snippets of films. Okay. So there's a very good chance that you've heard this score before. It kind of makes sense because as you're watching, it's like, I feel like I've heard this. Uh, despite all of this, Milius really wanted to use the Carmina Burana to play for Tulsa Doom's entrance, only changing his mind when Excalibur used it the year before. Of course, then a different famous director and a friend of Milius's would decide to use it extensively in his Star Wars prequels. John Milius worked closely with Polydorus on the composition to match the tone of the film. He had conceived of the film as an almost opera with nearly no dialogue. Polydorus obliged, and he composed enough music to cover nearly the entirety of the final film. In fact, he worked in reverse. He had Polydorus start composing based off of storyboards, and then they would record all of the music near the end of production once they knew exactly what they were filming against. Each of the broadswords for the film cost $10,000 and had to be made weathered for the film. Both of Kodan's swords were hand-ground from carbon steel, heat-treated, and unsharpened. The hilts and pommels were sculpted and cast from lost wax processing and inscriptions added through electrical discharge machining. However, those primary swords were unbalanced, heavy, and unsuitable for combat. So they only used them in close-ups. The actual fight scenes were used swords made from aluminum, fiberglass, and steel. In fact, Valeria's sword was ground from a single aluminum sheet. The inscription on Conan's sword reads, Suffer no guilt, ye who wield this in the name of Krom. Schwarzenegger (laughs) reportedly displayed the sword behind his chair in the cabinet room while he was the governor of California. I respect this move. (laughs) You're going to do something, do it right. It's just a reminder of what I can do to you. Remember who you're dealing with. At one point, Schwarzenegger went up to John Milius and asked what the purpose was of the Wheel of Pain. You know, the big wheel that we see them turning around. Yeah. Milius looked at him and just said, it grinds grain. (laughs) Then Schwarzenegger looked and found out that, yes, it actually did grind grain. Yeah. It practically worked. Yeah, no. Again, this is why I love John Milius as a character. Not as a man, necessarily. Sure. But just as a character of, like, this man is nut job. Mm-hmm. But he's also insanely practical. <laughs> yeah. What, what is this whole weird thing? It grinds grain. The snake handler on set reportedly only had beautiful women for assistance. As one does. According to John Millius, quote, he was sort of like Thulsa Doom. <laughs> Apparently, the wrangler would offer a personal snake for the crew and cast aware during the day while filming. Mm-hmm. Thorgrim's snake started to get anxious one day, and Milius, say, Milius claimed that actor Sven Olthorsen grabbed the snake by the head, stared directly in its eyes, and made it understand who was in charge. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, when you see that man on screen, you're like, damn. Oh, yeah. In fact, Milius stated they cast the, the bad guys other than, than James Earl Jones. They specifically cast them all to be bigger than Arnold. Mm-hmm. Because they were like, he has to be going up against someone bigger than him. Which means they got bigger beefcakes than Arnold. They had to. But you're like, God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine actually standing next to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, fuck. Uh, real arrows were shot into the snake that Arnold was fighting right above Arnold's head. 
When they determined who would be the best archer to do this on set, it was determined that it would be John Milius himself. He's crazy, man. Uh, producer Dino De Laurentiis wanted Milius to remove the scenes of Conan and his friends getting drunk. He thought it wasn't dignified. Uh, De Laurentiis specifically did not like the moment where Conan passes out in the soup, and Schwarzenegger also was like, it's like an Alka-Seltzer commercial. Jeez. Which it is, but also it's amazing. Yeah. And Milius explained, quote, the idea is that it's great. They aren't dignified. They have money, and they're totally drunk and excited with power. And he's goddamn right. Yep. In 1976, Mattel had started developing a toy line to rival against Star Wars, which they had infamously turned down. Mm -hmm. So they came up with warriors that would fit into sort of barbarian, sci-fi, or military settings, Mm -hmm. which eventually turned into Masters of the Universe. In the interim, the producers of Conan reached out to Mattel to see if they wanted to do Conan. Okay. Uh, But they saw the violence and were like, "Uh, we cannot do action figures to this movie because no child can see it. Mm -hmm. But later on, when Conan did try to put out a line, Mattel sued them saying, this is Masters of the Universe. And Conan was like, no. And they reportedly settled because it was like, "Uh, no, but it kind of is because you guys kind of knew. Not not, yeah. but also chill. Everybody chill. Reportedly, the dogs used in the chase scene were incredibly dangerous. According to Milius, quote, when you had the dogs chasing Arnold and he's running, he's actually running for his life because he knew those dogs were very dangerous and they even attacked their trainer. Mm-hmm. In fact, he fell down on a rock he was climbing during one of the shots and injured his back. Okay. The vultures at the Tree of Woe made use of several real vultures. And oh, wow. an actual mechanical bird, which is the one that Conan bites. Uh, the dummy bird used feathers and wings from a dead vulture, and the controls were routed into the tree. However, apparently Arnold had to prepare for the scene to gargle with alcohol because one of the birds had lice. They had lice? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, they're vultures. They eat dead animals. The tree itself was made out of plaster and styrofoam on a wood skeleton that rotated on a turntable that allowed them to keep consistent shadows while filming shots over three different days. Hmm. Smart. Uh, Arnold sat on a bicycle seat mounted in the tree while fake nails were placed on his wrists and feet. Hmm. So practical, easy. Everybody comes out and the shot looks like it does. Um, The giant snake was an actual mechanical snake, but it couldn't move very well. So it was like full on animatronics. So they only used a few shots of that. Instead, the majority of it is a rubber snake with ropes. Okay. Which, yeah. However, most of the other animals in this movie are real. Mm -hmm. Now, the American Humane Association was like, uh, clearly you injured some of these animals. And to be fair, in the movie, a dog got kicked, horses are tripped, and of course, a camel gets punched in the face. Yeah. But Milius states that all the animals were stunt animals, particularly the horses. Um, They all knew how to trip and fall. So he's like, we didn't harm animals. Don't care what they said. Mm -hmm. We didn't do it. And this is, I think, before the Humane Association had representatives on set. So they were just like, this is incredibly violent. And we think you might have hurt some of these animals, especially if they were real. Now, the horses didn't get hurt, but the stuntmen, however, got thrown quite a bit, uh, including one who needed 15 to 20 stitches, but as soon as he got them, went right back to filming. 
80s were a different time. Yeah. To get the puddles of blood, they used buckets of actual blood from slaughterhouses. Gross. Yeah. That is gross. (laughs) Ew. Yeah, I know. To maintain the worn-in look of the costumes, producer Dino De Laurentiis wanted the actors to wear their costumes during rehearsals and in between scenes. Mm-hmm. Which works when you've got that much like leathery stuff going on. It does it does look a lot better than if it was all shiny. Mm-hmm. If it was all shiny, it would be so fucking off-putting. Some stuntmen in the film took too long to die and had to get paid extra to lie down and stay down. Mm-hmm. Milia said that the actress who is playing the woman who gets offered to Conan while he's in his uh, his cage mm-hmm. was genuinely terrified of Arnold. Oh, wow. Though reportedly Arnold is like a sweetheart, never did anything. Mm-hmm. But it, she was literally just like, oh, my God. <laughs> the fake blood on set was made from concentrate and was supposed to be mixed with water before use. However, where they were filming was so cold that they instead had to mix it with vodka. When actors were supposed to spit blood, they would typically wind up swallowing it and then would go to the effect supervisors to get some more shots. Incredible. Great stuff. Not even mad. Mm-mm. At one point, Milius got sick while filming and had to direct from a trailer. Quote, oh. I thought I was breaking new ground while directing from a trailer, and then I read a thing where Francis was directing a movie from a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that track. Milius claimed that right after the film came out, he noticed Arnold talking to a woman. She noted how sexy the scene was with him and the witch, and Arnold replied, You know, even for me, that doesn't happen every time. That's funny. I should remind everyone, too, he was definitely married to Maria at this point. Okay. Uh, They were married, and in fact, he was away for so long that he had to, like, fly her out on occasion because they were, like, this took a year. This took a long time to get made. Yeah, that's fair. And finally, at one point, Conan was supposed to throw a torch into the central window balcony of the palace. Mm. Arnold missed, but they didn't get another shot because uh, the set burned completely to the ground like it was supposed to. Mm. Uh-oh. Whoops. Guess we're just going to have to edit that one. I mean, there are worse things to have to edit, to be sure. And that leads us to ratings. Oh, God. Uh, for every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, the Lamentations of Your Women. No, not even. I'm never going to stop saying that. <laughs> not, not really. It's really good, and it's really fun to say in his voice. It, it is very funny to say. Uh, but we're going to have to do Conan Broadswords, right? You got to do it. The Lamentations of the Woman. As no, a no, no, no. Lem- we're doing, as a we're woman, doing Broadswords. I want to do the Lamentations of a Woman. No. <laughs> okay. Um, although I will say, that final shot of him, when they pull the scroll and he's in his king stuff, and you're like, shit. Yeah. I was like, that's the Conan I want to see. And to be fair, there is a sequel. They got one sequel out. But uh, it's, John Melius is not involved. So okay, I'll go first with this one. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm struggling here. I'm going to go two and a half. I'm going with two. I'm going two. It's a perfectly entertaining movie. Script's got a fuck a ton of problems. And it's dated. But there's enough there that I feel like it's still kind of a fun watch. Mm-hmm. Probably better to watch with a bunch of friends and kind of laugh at it and make fun of it. And then, you know, once the cool shit happens, be like, oh, cool, here's the cool shit. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, laugh at the rest. But, you know, it's kind of, it's, I think the most fun out of it really is just watching Arnold at this point, right before he's about to become a real movie star. Like, that's really the cool thing about it. Mm-hmm. 
And John Milius is a legitimate crazy person who also did some really cool shit. Yeah, it's just a two. Uh, Arnold's awesome. They're trying something new. It's first time. And, like, I know the snake's really bad, but I kind of love it. <laughs> like, there's just, there's a childlike quality to the ingenuity. I was like, I get what you're going for here, and I respect the effort. So that's that's why it's a two. It's a two. This is definitely a movie a nine-year-old would make. Yeah. With a, yeah, with their iPhone. This is a, this is a nine-year-old film. In the best way. Yeah, and that, yeah. We're, we're not punching down on that. And- yeah somebody could definitely go run wild with the story in a real fun way. Mm-hmm. Well, what's next? Well, let's go from one breakout performance to another. Okay. With a movie that everybody knows one specific scene, mm-hmm. but has no idea about any of the rest of it. Okay. We're going to talk about Risky Business. Ah, uh, yeah. I've never, yeah. I'm, we've never seen that one before. I've never seen it. I We know the scene. We know the scene of Tom Cruise in his underwear singing Bob Seger. Yeah. And the funniest part that I know, because I do know this much about it, is that that scene is completely incongruous with everything else in the fucking movie. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I'm really curious about this one Mm -hmm. because, like, I know some of the basic tenets and that it's... It's got a reputation based off of this one scene, but it's really a totally different movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's baby Tom Cruise. Yeah. So, like, are we even going to get running face? Oh, ooh, Tom Cruise running face. That's a favorite of this podcast. But will we have it in this movie? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Okay, it'll be interesting, to say the We're least. we have to find out. Hmm. Okay. But before we go. We have some new movies to talk about. New movies. First, we saw Scream 6. The survivors of the Ghostface killings leave Woodsboro behind and start a fresh chapter in New York City. This was so fun. They they promised an entirely new adventure in an entirely new location. By God, they delivered. They did, and they had a lot of fun with their tropes, as they always do. Um, a lot of character commentary, a lot of good fake-outs. I, I so enjoyed it. I, I had so much fun with it. Thoroughly enjoyed. Had my own criticisms at times, like I have, like you do with the Scream movies. It's always, there's probably one little thing that you're like, eh, I don't love that, but so fun. Mm-hmm. Well, they're all so fun. Next, we saw Creed 3. Adonis has been thriving in both his career and family life, but when a childhood friend and former boxing prodigy resurfaces, the face-off is more than just a fight. This was really good, and the fact that it was directed by Michael B. Jordan, he did an amazing job. He really did. It's not as crisp as the first two, and how could it be with Coogler at the helm (laughs) of those? But But the, the story is great. The story's great, and, you know, he got to put his anime dork in there. Which is precious, and it's so good, and it fits so well. Well, and at first, I remember in that moment being like, oh, boy, here we go. And then I went, oh, this works perfectly. Yeah. No, it worked so well. You know, elephant in the room with Jonathan Majors. Yeah, we saw this before all of that stuff about him came out. And like his performance is phenomenal. It's just like we're watching this movie. Like, this guy's going to be a fucking star. It sucks. It really sucks. It really sucks. 
but it's 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 great. It's a great addition to the franchise. All three of those movies are incredible. Even if you never want to watch Rocky, and I get mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You got to watch the Creeds. Oh, next we saw Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Scott Lang and Hope Van Dyne are dragged into the quantum realm, along with Hope's parents and Scott's daughter, Cassie. Together, they must find a way to escape. But what secrets is Hope's mother hiding? And who is the mysterious Kang? This was fun. Is this movie the best? No. No. Was it a lot of fun and only clocked in at two hours? I think it was like 1.45. It's two hours, four minutes. Okay. Well, it was short and fun and set up a bunch of crap. Great, great time. We took our kids to this one, and this was one that we we felt very confident that we could see we could take them without having to see it first because we usually screen Marvel movies first. We're like, nah, this one's gonna be fine, and we had a great time. It was great. Look, and and I get to some extent that, especially critically, there's Marvel fatigue. Sure, fair, and there is nothing wrong with that, and I totally get it. This is just fun with some of your favorite fun people. That's that's it. It has Paul Rudd. I'm going to see it. Just enjoy enjoy the Paul Ruddness and the bits and you'll be fine. <laughs> it's, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. It's fun. It's a great time. Yeah. Next we saw John Wick Chapter 4. John Wick uncovers a path to defeating the high table. But before he can earn his freedom, Wick must face off against a new enemy with powerful alliances across the globe and forces that turn old friends into foes. <sighs> this movie's too long by a lot. A lot. You had to wonder when they would push the lore too far. I don't think the lore is too far. Okay. Like, I don't have a problem with the lore. The problem is, this is like Legend of Zelda degrees of having to go on quests. There's like, so to, much shit <laughs> to solve <laughs> like... a fucking issue. And it's just like, you you need to cut a solid 45 minutes out of this. Like, like I. I, I know they're also using this to like backdoor the television series. That's fine. But like you could have cut so much of this down. I will say like his main adversary, especially as being someone who is blind is fucking amazing. And the way they set that up was so cool. I loved it. So clever. Definitely uh, made like the fight scenes fresh because you can get some fight fatigue here. And there is some in this film, but that was great. Keanu's great. I wasn't not going to see it. And of course, I'll see the next one. But tighten it up, guys. They they lost the thread a little bit with what they had done before, which was just slowly build that world around a core story. Yeah. You started in one small world, then you built it out a little bit more, but still in a tight place and then did it again with the third one. And now in this one, they just like exploded the whole world and forgot about the story a little mm-hmm. bit. <laughs> I was just like, uh oh, that's not great. You should still go see it. John Wick's amazing, but mm-hmm. wrench it in for the last one. Okay, guys? Mm-hmm. Next, we saw Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. A charming thief and a band of unlikely adventurers embark on an epic quest to retrieve a lost relic, but things go dangerously awry when they run afoul of the wrong people. This was just fun. I I know I, I we're not super big D&D people. We play other games. But I, I have dabbled a little bit in Dungeons and Dragons. So I know there's like jokes and little Easter eggs that went over my head. But it was a good time. It was silly. You don't have to have like a bunch of lore knowledge or like you don't have to know anything about classes either to enjoy this film. It's just like a fantasy adventure. And that was great. They made a good, fun, dumb fantasy movie for once. 
I, yeah. Like we have done so many lore heavy, mm-hmm. big, epic fantasy stories as of late mm-hmm. because everybody wanted to copy Game of Thrones. And yeah. Game of Thrones was awesome for a while. Mm-hmm. But not every fantasy movie has to be super smart. It can be stupid too. It can be stupid and silly and just cool for the sake of being cool. But one of the things I think they did a great job, aside from, I think they did like big D&D nerds proud um, because I've talked to them. But I think they also did a great case for people who don't really know anything about Dungeons Dragons to give them enough of like, this is what it could be like at your table. Go investigate it Um, to just give you enough that you could become curious about the game, which is a great aim of a of a movie like this. It's like we want to draw people to our game and we want to celebrate the people who already love it. They I think they balance that so well. And playing into the aspect of how close you can become mm-hmm. with people that you engage in these games with. Yeah. By exploring that with the characters. Yeah, you can really have like a found family both within like the the people you actually play with, but also that that World. party of your characters. Really, yeah. really great. Yeah. Next, we saw the Super Mario Brothers movie. The story of the Super Mario Brothers on their journey through the Mushroom Kingdom. Another stupid movie that I really enjoyed. Beyond stupid. It's so stupid, but I love it. All the shit with Donkey Kong like made my heart <laughs> so happy. They hate um, each other. It's so funny. It's the, in the best way. The voices are great, even though we've got some Chris Pratt fatigue. Um, they did a good job. I like that. I really love that Princess Peach is not, you know, a damsel in distress, which is great. Yep. Um, I don't love the framework of the film um, with uh, Mario and Luigi and their family. It just kind of felt like some really weird, some weird stereotypes that you didn't have to, like, feed into. I don't know. But the the main film itself was really fun, and they they set it up for potential sequels really well. I just a lot of people were like, "We didn't do anything interesting or smart with this movie." It's like not every animated movie has to be the smartest thing on the block. It's a it's based on a video game where you jump through sewer pipes and kill mushrooms and, uh, and crazy turtles. turtles. It doesn't have to be more complicated than no. that. And it yet can they just made be real stupid and fun. <laughs> yeah, we gotta we. We got to re recalibrate our expectations on things sometimes. Like some like I heard this uh I heard this amazing little snippet from Taika Watiti whom again we adore and he was on the set of What We Do in the Shadows and he's talking to Jemaine Clement who they wrote that film together and and Taika's just like this is like this is a 20 minute bit at best and like just looking at the production being like this is absurd and Jermaine Shut up. People me- need to make stupid shit. And I'm just like, he's absolutely right. You have to make stupid shit. People need stupid shit. Yes. And this is one of those things. This is the, one of those things. Next, we saw Renfield. Renfield, Dracula's henchman and inmate at the lunatic asylum for decades, longs for a life away from the Count, his various demands, and all of the bloodshed that comes with them. I love how much Nicholas Holt has grown up to be just precious. Clever premise. Yeah. Pretty fun. But even in an hour and a half, the bit kind of runs its course pretty quick. Yeah. They needed another problem other than just Dracula. Like, I think that's what it was missing. They kind of tried to call. I don't know. It's just 
they played with the emotional manipulation and abusive relationship, the, the mentally abusive and emotionally abusive part of it. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting, but you can only make so many jokes about that. <laughs> well, I think I think they should have added a different layer with Renfield of like not him so much like trying to just leave Dracula, but like try to leave a double life of like trying to be like a crime fighter against evil, but like also I help people. Like I think that would have been a better like subplot for him. Um that could have lasted, would have given it all more weight. But it's fine. It's just fucking fun. Yeah. No, no. The 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 bits are super fun. The premise is awesome. The Nicholas fucking Cage, man. God damn. Yeah. It's a role he was meant to play. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing a great job. It's just like we we needed to rework this, redraft some things a little bit. Yeah. Next we saw Cocaine Bear. An oddball group of cops, criminals, tourists, and teens converge on a Georgia forest where a huge black bear goes on a murderous rampage after unintentionally ingesting cocaine. This movie is so stupid, but I don't care because it is fun. It's fun. It also, it goes on and on a little bit much. And I think, I think there's just too many characters. I, there's a few too many things going on in the plot of the story. Yeah. There are one or two bits they probably could have gotten rid of. But like I like the the stuff with the park ranger that's fine. They're like the mom, like there's they've got a good through line, but like all like the bits that kind of wander is just like, do we need this? No. Uh and it's just funny. It's it is very funny. Yeah, and it, and I do wonder if this movie suffers from the there were so many crazy things that happened in the real story and we've got to try to shuff, stuff them all into the movie. Um no, none of this happens. Oh, damn it. Like I looked into it like the bear died almost instantly. And the guy, the guy did jump out of a plane, but he also died pretty much instantly. So like it had no actual impact, but the fact that this could have happened was insane. But the bear died almost instantly or very shortly after ingesting the cocaine. Nothing happened. Yeah. Like no, nobody, nobody was hurt. Nobody was killed other than that one dude who jumped out of a plane. See, yeah, I think I here. Here's the thing. I think it's too plot heavy. I think they're just doing too many things and not mm-hmm. spending enough time letting us have time with the characters. Yeah, to kind of figure out what are your issues, why are you being like this, and and mm-hmm. then coming to like care a bit more. Yeah. Next, we saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Still reeling from the loss of Gamora, Peter Quill rallies his team to defend the universe and one of their own. A mission that could mean the end of the Guardians, if not successful. So this movie's a lot darker. Um, I, I've seen a lot of criticism for like how dark it is. It's got the first F word in all Marvel history, which is hilarious. Um, but this film is a PG-13. And so they're really leaning hard into like, hey, PG-13 means it's not suitable for all audiences 13 and under. Um, which people forget. <laughs> um, so like, I... I cannot take my eight-year-old to this. My eleven-year-old would probably be fine. Eight-year-old, no, he can't. Yeah, see this. no, no, no. It's no. not. It's 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 not the other Guardians movies where it's just kind of silly, can't be fun. Yeah, it's it's. I would put it like it's similar to the level of I think um, Black Widow in that it's got some more adult themes, like nothing like wildly inappropriate, but it's just more adult. And it's also there's also some really dark content, and I think. Like that's where like it kind of gives me it gives me big pause 
Um, it's a good story. The soundtrack is actually pitch perfect, which is like one of the hallmarks of this series. The more I think about it and like dissect certain bits, I'm like, oh no, that was great. That was great. Um, the difference about this film compared to other Marvel movies is that this one is supposed to close a chapter of this huge um, series of this huge story that we're in. Um, it's not meant to really set up a, a bunch more later on. It's supposed to close this piece of this giant story we've been following for so long, which it does a really good job of. It also deals with a lot of the grief <laughs> that these characters faced. It does handle grief. And I, I think like grief, grief and trauma, um, but also like very much a like found family stuff, which is fabulous. And I love. Yeah. Thor dealt with that, too, but in some different ways. It didn't tackle it head on like this movie does. Well, I think this one is more explicitly that that's what they're dealing with. Wherein, like Thor, we really just got fat Thor who's drinking all like Lebowski Thor. And people are like, oh, that's just, you know, me. I was like, he's dealing with trauma. That's oh, how yeah. he's dealing with it. That's totally normal. Um, Give him a minute. Like, we're not fat shaming him. It's kind of funny to see the like buffest Avenger be fat for a minute. He's going to be OK. Like, it's going to be OK. And then, you know, Love and Thunder. Yeah, like they, they kind of make, they try to make light of it, but he was definitely dealing with shit. But like this one, it just goes so deep into that in, I think, a really smart way. It's yeah. just that because they dwell so much on it, the criticism of the movie is it's it's going on too long. It, 240, it is. 245 is just too much for, for just these characters. The, well, I understand to like, really like close this chapter yes but we probably need 30 minutes out of this movie but our characters are there and they're so fun i mean drax and mantis bring me so much joy uh rocket is always awesome and rocket really takes center stage and you know i I didn't realize that we called this groot is swole groot um which i think is hilarious and just really cool and like the way that that character has evolved in this version um is so fun it's so fun yeah it was good the more the more i think about it the more i'm like oh yeah no i really i really do like this This is really good james gunn is great he he understands these characters i really hope he's able to bring like this level of both like goofiness but also interesting storytelling to dc Mm -hmm. which is obviously where he's going next but yeah also, Cosmo, really good dog. Cosmo, great. I mean, voiced by Maria Bakalova. Like, she's the shit. Good dog. Good dog. And that's it. So until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.